Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you for another day to study your word, to grow in our faith, to see your working through the history of Israel, and how you work yet even today. We pray that you would enlighten our hearts and minds to understand your word and to see your work on our behalf. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. All right, dividing up the promised land. That was one of, um, toward the end of the book of Joshua, and one of Joshua's last things that he did was... Um, a, yeah, hi. I don't want to interrupt you, mm-hmm. but you're going everywhere I know. in the church. Oh, I know. I ask him, I go, does, he, does that normally happen? And he yeah. says, no. Well, if, if you're wondering what we're talking about, just come on in. <laughs> I was. That's kind of the idea. But I was walking up through the church, and all of a sudden you started. Uh, not in the sanctuary itself. Yeah. Really? Everywhere. It, oh, I should, everywhere. I'm in the sanctuary too? You're everywhere. <laughs> what number am I on? Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, okay. <laughs> Let's see if this changes it. Hang on. I'll probably still be in here, but I won't be in the sanctuary now, I don't think. Now I'm on, Channel 6 was still in the sanctuary. Channel 8's just in here, I, I'm pretty sure. If not, if not, whatever. <laughs> they, can, they can deal with me in there, too, I guess, so. All right. So one of Joshua's last things that he did was, uh, was dividing up the promised land. And, of course, they had come in um, down this way and out. And before Moses had died, he had given some land to half the tribe of Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben on, on, the, uh, on the, the east side of the Jordan River. I always, I always feel like that's got to be west because it's on the other side of the world, but it's not. All right, so the east side of the Jordan, and then on the west side... You know, they were, they were coming through Jericho and, and battling in this area. And then now that they had taken some of the major cities, it was then left up to the, to the individual tribes to actually take possession of the land and to occupy it and to live in it. And so we've got Judah and Simeon, Dan, Benjamin, Ephraim, uh, Manasseh. Manasseh's also got land on this side. Issachar, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, Gad, Reuben. There's so many varied... Um, conspicuous missing from that list. There's one tribe that didn't get any land. The Levites. The Levites did not have a particular uh, geographic region, but they were given particular cities and the grazing areas around them to care for their flocks, but also for their people. And most of them had to do with what they called um, cities of refuge. Um, that's, that's in the latter parts of the books of Joshua. There were cities of refuge that somebody could escape to if they accidentally killed someone. If it was an accident, if it was manslaughter instead of murder, difference there, they could flee to one of the cities of refuge, and the city of refuge would take them in and house them there until they would stand trial for whatever had happened to verify that, yes, it was an accident, and if, and if somebody came to um, extradite them or, or to, to, to exact vengeance on them, they, they would not, the, the city of refuge would protect that person while they were inside until the trial uh, took place. Ended up, a lot of the Levite cities ended up being those cities of refuge also, which is kind of where we get the idea of sanctuary in uh, protection from um, from. If you are from persecution or something, that people would flee to the uh, the altar, and then they would, if if they hung onto the altar, that would be they would have sanctuary. They they would be safe in the church 
until they could say in trial or, or something like that. So that's, that's the um, idea of dividing these things up. And you have those cities of refuge on the back of your um, handout today. They're the square cities like Shechem, Hebron, uh, Golan, Kadesh. Um, there's another one called Zor, Zoar. And uh, there was actually a, a Lutheran church in Chicago called Zor, Zoar Lutheran Church. Is there? Yeah. All right. There you go. Yeah. There you go. A city of refuge. They could. Um, chances are that person's family would go after them. And it was, it was th- very much tribal kind of justice. Um, you know, clans would go out and they would say, well, you did this against me, so we, we're getting our neighbors and they're going to come out against you. And if they say, no, we didn't do it, they might go to the priest then to settle the dispute or something like that. So it was very sort of tribal and it's a, a little bit, a little wild west in that kind of respect where it was sort of up for grabs. But it was, you know, one family and another family doing justice. And if they couldn't make a decision on it, then they would go to, well, the, already they had been going to Moses for, for uh resolution of disputes, and then to Joshua, and then they set up the, um, the, the 70 elders to mediate disputes. And then later on, as they take possession of the land, God is going to raise up judges then to, to rule in the land and to make those kind of decisions for, for different things. So there really wasn't even a standing army of Israel. It was basically, all right, we're going out. Everybody send out your mighty men. And they would all line up, and they would off they would go. So they would kind of do it. So, so present-day Israel is, is quite, a bit, quite a bit shrunken down compared to this map, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Present-day Israel, I think, basically, encom- it's, it's, it's all on the, the west side of the Jordan, I'm pretty sure. Although I'm not, I don't know what the present-day geographical region is, you know. But it's, it's similar in, in, in outline, but... Yeah. You can see why it's a disputed area because later on when the Israelites are, are driven out of there and then other people are settled into that place and then for you know, a thousand years there's no Israel, there's no Israelites there. And then in mid-20th you know, mid century, the, the UN decides, nope, they can go back to Israel and they occupy it then. You can see why it's a conflicted region. It's like... Well, we were here first. Well, you weren't here for a thousand years. It's ours now. And, and it's sort of now there's a big fight over the whole, the whole thing. Is it on strictly religious grounds? You can, you can divide up the sides pretty easily on religious affiliation uh, or um, more, more ge- religious genealogy. You know, they trace back to a particular heritage, but it's not a religious battle. It's, uh, it's, a, political, it's a political battle. All right, so, but the, the, the conquest ultimately was incomplete. So if you go to Judges chapter 1, starting at verse 27. There are a couple things I want you to note um, in 27 through 36. 
it's, it's a kind of a reoccurring list here, but here's the theme. Manasseh did not drive out, right? Manasseh did not drive out, and um, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. You see those spots? Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. I missed one. There's one. Zebulun did not drive out. Asher did not drive out. Um, They did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive them out. And they did put them to forced labor. You know, they made them slaves or something like that, but they did not either drive them out or um, devote them to destruction, as God said, when you conquer them. You know, basically kill them all because if you leave them there, they're going to take influence on you and they're going to lead you astray. But the conquest was ultimately incomplete. They did not drive all these out, and they became a thorn in the side of Israel for, uh, for many generations because they did not obey the, the word of the Lord. If you look um, in, uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal, to Bochim, and said, I brought you out of the land of Egypt to the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called on the name of that place, Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Bochim is a Hebrew word for uh, weeping. So the place of weeping is basically what they made that. Um, Interestingly, um, we have the angel of the Lord. And who does he say brought them out of Egypt? I did. So who is appearing to them and speaking to them? God himself is speaking to them and, and uh, bringing them this message. They, God had made his full covenant with them, but they did not listen to his word. They did not carry out his word. And so now he says, I'm not on your side now. You remember that, remember that comment uh, from Joshua? Are you on our side or are you for our enemies? And God said, no, <laughs> neither. <laughs> I'm, I'm in my covenant, and because you disobeyed me, they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God's snares for you. Because they didn't, they didn't follow through with what God had, had commanded them. Um, the next thing after this is they, they record Joshua's death um, again. Maybe. In uh, verses 1 through chapter 2, we've got 6 through um, 11, we get Joshua's death. And then starting at verse 11, do I have verse 11 on here? There it is. After Joshua dies, verse 11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now there's the, there's the first instance of what will be a very common reoccurring false gods among uh, the Israelites because of the Canaanite worship of Baal, or in, in Hebrew, Baal. You get two vowels together, Baal. 
um, they, they serve the Baals. It was, it's the word for lord or lordships. And the, the main deity of Baal was a fertility god. He would, um, he's depicted riding a bull and with a, with a club in one hand and a spear in the other, thunder and lightning. And he was the god of rain and fertility. Um, so you can understand later on when uh, Elisha is up against the prophets of Baal, they're sacrificing a bull, waiting for Baal to send down fire and a storm to devour it, and he can't because he obviously doesn't, doesn't exist. But the people of Israelite began to serve the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods. From among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs. And you'll hear about Asherah poles throughout, uh, throughout this, uh, the, the Canaanite occupation as well. So you've got bulls that you would worship. That's the, the Baal image. And then there would be poles, you know, varying heights and things like that, sometimes with, with carved images on them that would be set up like trees. And Asherah was sort of the feminine version of the, uh, the fertility god. So at these sites, you would have these poles and you would have like an altar of some kind, but most significantly, you would have a tent. And the tent is where you worshipped the fertility gods. There would be a temple prostitute there. You'd go, you'd pay her or him, and through sexual intercourse with that prostitute, you would worship the Baal or the Asherah, and then in hopes of getting a good crop, a good harvest, things going your way. And, and you'll see that coming up later on in the book of Judges and things like that. I love the look on your face. It's like, oh, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. That's disgusting. Yep. <laughs> Wait till they start worshiping Molech. <laughs> that's really a good one. Then they, then they start murdering their own children. Uh, offering their children as, as uh, human sacrifices. So you got these poles, they'd be like trees. Does this sound at all familiar? Big troll, big poles with images carved on them. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. I mean, those were points of worship. And it's, I think that's probably a lot what they looked like. Think, think totem poles. I think that's the way to think about that. All right, so they ba- served the Baals and the Asherah. Anger was against them. And here's kind of the... Here's kind of the summary of the book of Judges, okay? The people abandoned God, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he sold them into the hand of their enemies so they would no longer withstand them, and the Lord was against them as he had warned, as he had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. So they go from faithfulness and then it comes around, they abandon They're occupied. They cry out. God sends a judge. And they're restored. That's the cycle of judges. Round and round they go through the whole book of judges. There's uh, anywhere from 12 to 15 judges, depending on how you count them. And it just, they go round and round. So you start with Joshua. They're faithful. Joshua dies and they abandon and then they come around, they're occupied, the Lord is against them, 
they're in terrible distress, and they're crying out, God will send a judge, and he will rescue them. So that's the cycle that goes round and round and round. So he sets up judges. This is, um, the, the word for judges there is, you know, it, don't think so much, you know, curly white wig, black gown, sitting on a bench. Kind of. I mean, these, these are the rulers of the land. These are the governors of Israel. These are the ones who would be um, either militarily or uh, governmentally in charge of the affairs of Israel. God will often refer to them as, you know, I will, or uh, they'll talk about the judges judge them, but God was their ruler. You know, when they start talking about kings later on, God is their king, but he will set up a prince, but the people will always call him a king and things like that. So in verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. You know, so there's the, so they cry out and then they're restored a judge. But, 17, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way which their fathers had walked and had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did so. There it is. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, saved them from the hand of their enemies. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. My battery must be dying. Probably too many times soon. All right. Um, nope, same one. All right. So there's the cycle of judges. <laughs> needs coffee. It needs, it's lagging. Jim. Yes, there's, yeah. He, Why couldn't he go back on that? Why would he have to? Because, you know, he said, the first thing that comes out of my house to greet me. Well, wouldn't he know it would probably be one of his family members? Yeah, we were talking about, um, it's in chapter, chapters 10 through 12. Um, there's a judge who, who says, you know, Lord, if you hand me over, if you, if you give me victory over my enemies, whoever comes out to me when I come back from the victory, I'll sacrifice that to you. I'll give that over to you. Oh, I really got nothing, don't I? <laughs> who's on Wi-Fi? Who, who's watching YouTube right now? Come on. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's on a separate, separate thing. Anyway, um, yeah, why couldn't he just, you know, set, you know, turn off from it? I don't know. Um, the, the question is sometimes whether he actually killed her or whether he offered maybe a substitute for her, you know, like, Moses and the, or like uh, Abraham and Isaac or something like that. But I, yeah, I don't really have an opinion on that. I, I don't know what would have happened there. Maybe. All right. Yeah, that, that's one of those stories where it's just like, man, that's really a weird, weird thing. Yeah. Yeah, probably. So here's the cycle of judges. Um, we have some major and minor judges. Some of them that really stick out that maybe you've heard the accounts of before would be like Deborah and Gideon. And um, we just mentioned Jephthah. But Deborah, Gideon, and Samson are probably the big um, notable 
judges that everybody kind of hears about. You've got, you've got stories about. Now, I've, I've done um, like a, you know, Bible stories you thought you knew, and we've covered Samson and kind of heard some of his accounts and things. Samson was not a nice guy. Um, he would visit the prostitutes, and he would do all kinds of stuff, and he kind of went back and forth from being faithful or not. But um, Samson was not such a great guy. But in the end, he, um, he, he brings the house down <laughs> on his oppressors, and he pushes the pillars, and they all die in things he had judged a certain period of time. Yes, Deborah was a female. Uh, chapters 4 and 5, let's look at Deborah. I'm glad you brought that up, because I, I got a slide for Deborah. <laughs> All right, Deborah and Barak. Sometimes they'll count Barak also as a judge, but Barak really isn't listed as a judge. He's listed as a commander of the army, but Deborah seems to be the one who's judging, who's, who's being the leader of things. Um, so we start with chapter 4. Um, the people of Israel again did, was, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So that was the previous judge, Ehud. He died, and so they fell away again, starting the cycle over. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned at Hazor. Coming around. Commander of his army was Sisera, and, the Lord, and they oppressed Israel cruelly for 20 years. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of, why would they break that over the line? Um, Lapidoth, mine's hyphenated there, halfway through Lapidoth's name. I was like, why would you do that? <laughs> Just, that's a bad editor. Um, was, Deborah was judging Israel at that time. She sat under the palm of Deborah, It became so well-known, it got named after her. Uh, She sat under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord commanded you, basically, go after Sisera, fight fight your enemies? And he says, Well, if you go with me, I'll fight fight them. And he says, No. Um, And she says, I will go with you. Um, but it won't be to your glory. We're down in verse 9. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh to fight. And so, because Sisera wouldn't just hear the, or because um, Barak wouldn't just hear the word of the Lord and go fight, as the Lord had told through the judge, he said, uh, she said, fine, we'll win, but you're not going to get the glory the glory is going to go to a woman. And of course, maybe everybody's starting to think, oh, maybe it's going to be Deborah who gets the victory, you know, or gets, gets the glory, but it's not. So they have this big battle, and Sisera flees away. And you're at verse 17 now. Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was a peace between Jabin and the house of Heber. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said, Turn aside, O Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. You know, basically, come in, come in, come in. You know, hide here. And uh, covered him with a rug. He says, I need water. I'm thirsty. So she gave him milk instead. Milk and curds, you know, you're on a, you know, it's warm. Drink some, you know, have a little warm milk. What do you do? You, you fall asleep. 
And if anyone's here, say no. He fell asleep. Verse 21. So Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went to the ground while lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. <laughs> uh, we, don't know, we don't exactly know who wrote the book of Judges. We're pretty sure it was Samuel who wrote it. You know, sometimes you just, you know, so he died. <laughs> you don't say. Um, Barak pursued Sisera, and they came in, they showed him. Yep, he had won. So the victory went to, the, the glory for killing Sisera went to Jael, the wife of um, the Kenite. So that's why I put on your little hand out there, camping anyone? She was one of the judges. She was appointed by God, and so she, she received revelations from God as well, that, she would, that they would have the victory over Sisera and, and these things. So uh, pretty, pretty uh, Judges is one of those kind of gruesome, earthy books, you know, although most of the Old Testament, you know, we get real people doing real things, sometimes, you know, nasty things. Chapter 5 is all the song of Deborah and Barak. Um, it's very much like in the form of a psalm. Uh, much like the song of Moses after the deliverance from the Red Sea and the song of um, uh, Hannah after she um, has um, Samuel and the song of uh, Mary in the hill country with Elizabeth, you know, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is poetic form. So they sing a song about the victory over Sisera that was awake there, that was, that was happened there. And the tent peg makes it into the... Uh, there, it's... Uh, Verse 24 and forward. <laughs> so, there you go. All right. Gideon, later known as Jerubbabel. Which is, well, which is interesting because Jerubbabel is sort of like uh, striving against Baal, is what the word means. And that's, that's ultimately what he did. God's first call to Gideon in chapter 6 is that he would go and destroy the Asherah poles and um, Baal idols at his father's house. And so he got a bunch of guys together, and at night they tore it all down. And then they took the bull that was sort of an image of Baal, a real bull, and they barbecued it <laughs> on the Asherah poles. I mean, that's really how you desecrate. That's how you really rub somebody's face in it. You know, you... you you break down their idols, and then you then you kill their you burn their sacrifice on their own, on their own idols. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. the The main um, antagonist right now in Israel is Midian, the Midianites. And I'd like for a second to go to Isaiah chapter nine because I'm I'm sure you've we've heard this before, especially around Christmas time. Um, there's a mention of Midian, the day of Midian, and, and maybe you didn't always wonder, you know, what, what day of Midian? I don't know what, what you're talking about there. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This all sounds a little familiar, right? Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So somebody reading this in Isaiah's time 
would have, you know, this is actually before they went into exile even, would have, would have known the story of Gideon and his victory over the Midianites and thought, oh, God is prophesying a victory over an oppressing army, over an, you know, an outside force, that he is going to raise up somebody to defeat our oppressors, like he did in the day of Midian. So when it comes around to Christmas next time, he's here, you know, you know, you have broken as in the day of Midian, you'll say, oh, that's the judges, that's Gideon's time, that's what's going on there. For he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These things. Okay? So that's the reference in Isaiah 9 to, to Midian. So we've got Midian in Isaiah chapter 9. Let's go back into uh, Judges chapter 6. All right. So God is calling Midian, uh, Gideon to fight against Midian. <laughs> Gideon and Midian. Jerubbabel is going to fight against Midian. <laughs> Can't tell your players without a program. Um, chapter 7. Uh, Gideon is looking for a, for a sign from God that he is actually going to be chosen, to, that he's actually going to be with them. So just before chapter 7 is the sign of the fleece. So um, Gideon says, I'm going to lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, and if there's dew on the, on the fleece only, and the dry, ground is dry, I'll know you will, you'll be with me. You'll save Israel by my hand. And he woke up the next morning, and there it was. The fleece, the, the wool, had dew on it, but the ground was dry, which you think if you leave something out, everything gets wet, right? And he wrung it out, and there's enough in the fleece to fill a bowl with water. That's a lot of dew. God really wanted to make the point, I guess. Well, Gideon, being kind of bold, I guess, I don't know. I don't know if I'd test God like this exactly. In verse 36 says, or verse 30 says, 39, he says, uh oh. Time for reading glasses. Uh, verse 39, he says, well, the next day, do the opposite. Make the ground wet and the fleece dry, and the Lord does it. Good for him. I don't know if I'd test God like that. Sometimes he, he says, oh yeah, now you can't talk for nine months or something like that. God's, God's done that before. <laughs> All right, so chapter 7, he's getting ready to go up against the Midianites. Um, the, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people you have are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So what is God worried about? Right. They got a big army, and so they're thinking, hey, look what we did, instead of giving glory to, to God. All right? So, proclaim to the ears of the people, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then, 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Chickens! <laughs> so if you're afraid, go home, basically, is what he said. So he lost 
two-thirds of his army right there. 22,000 went home, leaving 10,000 left. Okay, if 32,000 was too many, 10,000, that'll get the point across, right? No, no. God says, still too many. Verse 4, too many. Take them down to the water, and I'll test them. And anyone whom you say, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. Verse 5, so they went down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Luckily, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, so he's trying to make a distinction between people who would you know, get down and drink the water face first, and those who would bring water up. Now think militarily just for a second there. If somebody's going to come and attack you, when are you vulnerable? You'd be down like this, but if you're up like this, you're still, still able to see. That kind of makes sense. The number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who have lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. 32,000 to 10,000 to 300. I don't know how big an army the Midianites had that they thought 32,000 is what they needed, but now they have... 1% of that. 300. And it's going to be enough. Because this is the one where God gives them the victory at night. They they put a torch under um, under a pot and they surround the Midianite army, the 300 men. And they break the pots and they shout out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And Pots breaking and torches turning on and everybody freaking out. The whole Midianite army gets up and the Lord throws them into a panic and they end up just killing each other. You know, you can't tell who's who at night, so they just start swinging swords and the Lord gives them the victory. They, so what do they have to do? Shout. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like a Jericho, right? You know, it's the it's the whole you know all you, or at or at um, the Red Sea. All you have to do is be, be quiet. Just sit there. God's going to take care of this for you, right? Too bad we can't fight our battle. That would go a lot easier, wouldn't it? Definitely would. All right. So Gideon defeats uh, the Midianites like that. But Gideon also kind of falls prey to... Um, you know, he's the great champion in Israel now. He's the judge of these things. He creates sort of a, a, a breastplate or a priestly garb of some sort called, called his, an ephod. If you go to verse, chapter 8, verse 22, he takes all the gold and the silver from the earrings and things and he makes this, this uh, gold and, and silver ephod and he puts it in the city and... In verse 27, all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. The land was 40 years in the days of Gideon at rest. So he makes this, whether it's an image of himself or just some sort of um, memorial to the victory over the Midianites, it becomes a stumbling block to them, and they begin to worship at Gideon instead of at 
at God. So you already see kind of that, that beginning of the, that shade toward away from faithfulness into abandoning God's, uh, God's rules. Yep. Yeah, whoring after. That's, that's how God will describe um, worship of false gods. Because he understands Israel as his bride, and if they go worship another god, it's like having a, another husband. They're going after another husband. And that's why you get images like, um, well, the Song of Solomon is definitely Solomon writing about one of his wives, but it's also an image of God's love toward his bride, his people, the church, the nation of Israel and the church today. Then you get the book of like Hosea, where Hosea is told to go and marry a whore, a prostitute, named Gomer, and, to be, and, and she goes off and whores after other men, and he keeps bringing her back as an image of God's love for even his unfaithful people. So the, that, that phrase will come up over and over again, whoring after other gods, especially when you're talking about the Baals and the Asherah, when the way they worshipped them was truly whoring after other gods. All right, so then Gideon dies, Abimelech's conspiracy. Don't worry about that so much. It's interesting. It's all interesting reading. These are all different stories. I'd love to share with you more, but it just keeps going in that cycle. Just keep imagining that cycle going around and around, faithful and falling away, faithful and falling away. And then you've got uh, Samson. Samson dies. You've got Micah and the Levite. And then um, into chapter 20, um, there's, a, there's a war against the tribe of Benjamin, actually, um, as a result of some of the, the things with uh, this, this Levite who was taken in to be a, kind of a false priest and all kinds of weird stuff. So there's a war there, and that kind of wraps up the book of Judges. It doesn't wrap up the time of the Judges, because that really goes on into the time of Samuel, when Samuel becomes sort of the last judge, because what Samuel does is he anoints the first king over Israel. And we'll, that's where we're going to pick up um, in our next section, is the, the transition into the monarchy. So we'll talk about Samuel, the anointing of Saul, Saul's falling away in the anointing of David and then the other kings. So it's, it's going to be Saul and David and then Solomon. And then after Solomon, the kingdom gets divided. And then they start getting taken off into foreign lands. It's like the cycle continues even under the kings. But instead of the people coming in and occupying them there, later on they'll come in and then they'll, the, the cultural landscape has changed. And then when they, when they capture a people... They actually will take them back into exile, into slavery, to their homeland, and repopulate the land from their place. Oh, that kind of sounds familiar, too. <laughs> Modern times. So, um, got a couple minutes left. Any questions first? I got maybe one little topic to cover before we, before we finish up. Um, context of, of other things that happened during the times of the judges? Okay, Dean, you had a question. It doesn't seem like the, uh, the judges follow any kind of uh, 
Yeah, that's right. The, the judges did not follow any particular lineage. It wasn't like somebody's son became the next judge. Um, it was really as God appointed them or called them. And sometimes after a long period of there not being any judge, then God would raise up a judge, as he would call it. Um, there would be, you know, like he would raise up a prophet sometimes, too. He would make a call and, <laughs> hello, <laughs> you're a judge, okay. Um, jury duty. <laughs> um, yeah, so it didn't really follow that. See, what we're really, right now even, you know, Genesis, in, in the books of Moses, we really were following very closely the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? You know, this person's son, and this person's son, and this tribe, and they got the birthright, and all these things. We get into Joshua and Judges, we haven't talked about that at all. I mean, as far as where the, where the lineage of the, of the Messiah is going to be coming from. The first five books were very much focused on, um, on Abraham and his lineage and the establishment of the nation of Israel. And Joshua and Judges is really a history more of the, the Israel as a nation. And later on, when you get like, to David and things, God will begin to speak very specifically about who the Messiah will come from again, the throne of your father David and, and things like that. So um, we're going to sort of you sort of pick up that lineage idea again later on. But you kind of lose it here for a while in, in Joshua and Judges. That's not the focus. The focus becomes the, uh, the, the occupation of Canaan uh, and, and giving them the promised land. Um, to, a little bit of historical context for the, um, what comes after Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Ruth occurs near the end of the reign of the judges in particular. Can you go to, your, go to the book of Ruth there? Um, just Ruth chapter 1. It, it is a short book. It's, um, it's a good book, but uh, you know, in the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in, Judea, in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. I'll give you a short story of that. You know, his two sons marry two women, and all the men die. <laughs> Sad story. So then you've got the wife and the two daughters-in-law coming back eventually to, um, to Israel. And that would be Ruth, Naomi, and uh, the other wife, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head. Orpah. There it is. So there's Ruth and Boaz. Ruth and Boaz get married. It's a lovely love story. The exchanging of shoes and various things, which is kind of funny. But if you go to the end of chapter 4, this is all happening during the times of the judges, okay? Go to Ruth chapter 4 and at the end. So you get a little bit of genealogy now again, because that becomes important. As we, get, as we come up on David. So you've got, these are the generations of Perez. Perez to Hezron, Ram, Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashan, Nashan, Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. So you've got Boaz, who fathers Obed, who fathers Jesse, 
and Jesse fathers David. So Boaz and Ruth. So you got father, grandfather, great-grandfather. Think about that for a second. Boaz and Ruth are great-grandparents to David. Now some of you know your great-grandparents, right? Some of you met them before you died, right? Before you died. <laughs> before they died. <laughs> um, like my kids have gotten to meet their great-grandparents. Um, I kind of remember one of mine, not really all that much. But you know, it's possible David knew Boaz and, and Ruth. So it's really near the tail end of that, um, the, the time of the judges, right into the time of the monarchy. That's pretty close. You know, why is the book of Ruth in there? It's picking up that genealogy and showing that, yes, even in the time of the judges, God was remembering the lineage that would lead to Christ that has not been forgotten. So you got Boaz and Ruth. Ruth, by the way, not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. So she marries into the, she marries into the promise, Obed, Jesse, and David. Interesting, huh? Again, not, it's not this sort of pure, pristine, perfect... Um, lineage, it's real. Most of the genealogies are men. Huh? They throw in yeah, that's another important thing too, is when you see some of the genealogies as you're reading them in Matthew or in, in Luke, they'll, they'll kind of come through these things and they won't, they'll suddenly mention one of the women too that's significant, which is kind of neat. Like Tamar's in there and um, Uriah's wife is in there. That's always a good one too. So, <laughs> Had a son by somebody else's wife. I always liked that one. So, so there you go. I just wanted to connect that, how Ruth fits in chronologically. Ruth is at the tail end of the time of the, the judges. You can see where she fits. We'll find, we'll, when we get later on to the time of the exiles, we'll talk about where Esther fits in as well. So as you're looking at your Old Testament books, historically we've been moving very, very linearly. It's all been one, then the other. Judges, Ruth... Okay, Ruth fits in right there. Then you've got First and Second Samuel, Chronicles, and Kings. Kings and then Chronicles. That's going to be the history of the monarchy. After that, you start, you got the poetry books and then some of the prophets and things. Those overlap in time back into the Kings and Chronicle times. But right now, this is all historical still. Okay? Kind of neat. And we've come up onto... Um, right around 1,000 B.C. So within 1,000 years now of, of, of Christ being born. Pretty interesting. Time is closing in. So, All right. Any, any other questions? You guys are great. <laughs> all right. If you do have any questions, let me know. And, uh, but that's good. We'll pick up with uh, Samuel and the uh, rise of the kings.